I want to invite you then to look with me at Luke eleven fourteen to 28. And before we look at this portion of God's word together, let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you that you've given us your word. We thank you and praise you for everything that you have breathed out in it. We know that the words that you have spoken are spirit and they are life. And we need them. And we need you to take them and to press them deep into our minds and our hearts to write them indelibly by your spirit on our souls, that with the psalmist we would be able to say, your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. We pray that we may also say with him this morning that your words are sweeter than honey and the honeycomb, more to be desired than silver and gold. We pray, our God, that you would cause us to reap great benefit as we look at your word together. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now Luke, tracing the ministry of Jesus, writes, Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. If Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe, but when one stronger... Then he attacks him and overcomes him. He takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. The last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I was thinking about special moments I've had with my father, especially when I was a boy, and one one of... The most special times I had with my father, and this may be strange for me sharing this with you, I may not have ever shared this with you, is I loved watching heavyweight boxing with my dad. Now, if you're under 30, you probably don't even know what heavyweight boxing was, but it was the biggest thing. Um, There was incredible money poured into heavyweight boxing. There um, there, There were enormous contracts with television companies and pay-per-view, and, and some of the great memories I had with my dad were those times in the mid to late 90s when we watched uh, people like Mike Tyson and Evander Holyfield fight. Uh, in that first battle, they fought November uh, 9th, 1996. It was titled, finally, they had all these great names. They, they would title the, the fight in anticipation, what it would be. And that first meeting was called, finally, it went 11 rounds. Holyfield beat Tyson, beat him pretty severely. Tyson came out in full force, and everybody expected him to win. And every time he plowed into Holyfield with a series of 
punches that you would look at and say, this would kill somebody. Holyfield was just like a wall. He just took it until he finally broke Tyson down to the point where they called the match and the fight and and Holyfield won the WA title that year. The next year was the rematch, and this is the one that almost everyone remembers. Uh, It was the last time my father and I ever bought pay-per-view. I remember that because my dad insisted it was the biggest waste of money that he ever spent uh, in our home. But that took place on June 28, 1997. It was initially called The Sound and the Fury. Some of you will remember that, The Sound and the Fury. This was the rematch, Tyson and Holyfield. Uh, It later was renamed The Bite Fight, (laughs) because very famously now, um, Tyson had come out of the ring with his uh, his mouthpiece out because he was planning to bite Holyfield. Now we know that because he knew he couldn't beat him. And sometime 40 seconds into the third round, he bit a portion of Holyfield's ear off, one of the weirdest things that ever happened in sports history. And, and again, Holyfield won the WA title, and then he went on to win it again. And what, what we all very quickly realized was that there was a stronger than Mike Tyson. That was a surprise to people. No one thought there was anyone stronger than Mike Tyson. There was indeed one stronger than Mike Tyson, and all he could do was make himself look pathetic as he went on in these fights with Evander Holyfield and then on through the rest of his career, which sadly ended with lots of disrepute. Now, I tell you that story as I reflected back on times with my dad, and also as we come to a passage like this where Jesus gives that great statement that no one can defeat the strong man unless a stronger than he enter his house and bind the strong man and take away his armor and take away his possessions and, and, and set his prisoners free. And all of that happens in the context of Jesus as he is progressing in his ministry. He has been teaching his disciples. In a sense, he's taken a bit of a hiatus from doing miracles. Uh, Remember, in the early chapters, Jesus is doing a lot of miracles. He's showing his messianic power. He is astonishing the crowds. He is teaching his disciples. He is uh, exercising power over the wind and the waves. He is raising the dead. He is healing the sick, and then he takes a hiatus, and he begins to teach his disciples. From chapter 9 through the last portion of chapter 11, he is instructing them about what Christian life and service and ministry looks like, what it means to be a true disciple, and he has most recently taught them how to pray as true disciples in answer to a question of one of his disciples, Lord Teach us how to pray. Now, what's interesting is we're going to see this transition here from Jesus uh, taking time out to mentor and disciple his disciples and instruct them. And he is going to, in a sense now, return to the messianic ministry and what he came into the world to do to show them everything that he just taught them about himself. Now, Notice that when he gives them what we call the Lord's Prayer there at the beginning of chapter 11, notice the first petition, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. That's the biggest thing, that we would care about the kingdom of God. Jesus is teaching in that prayer, there's nothing more important. There's nothing we can care about more in this life. There is nothing that anyone can ever do or say or think that exceeds the weight of the importance of the kingdom of God. 
And so Jesus teaches us that the main thing, the principal thing that we ought to begin all of our prayers with is a vision for the manifestation of the kingdom of God in this world. Now that's interesting because Jesus is going to show us about that kingdom coming in power in the passage in front of us. He's going to show us that the kingdom has already come, that he brought the kingdom with him when he entered into this world, that what he came to do was to conquer the kingdom of the evil one, that you have a clashing of two kingdoms. You have a a battle of the ages, as it were, happening throughout throughout the messianic ministry. And Jesus is everywhere by his power showing that he is the stronger one. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and that he has all power and all authority over demons, over Satan himself, that there is no one stronger than the Lord Jesus Christ, and that what he came into the world to do was to defeat the kingdom of Satan and to bring the full manifestation of the kingdom of God by redeeming a people to himself, by, by setting the captives free, by transferring people from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of the Son of God's love, by redeeming a people to himself, and then by protecting them and saving them, and nurturing them. Now, what we're going to see this morning, in short, is that God wants us to see just how powerful Jesus is, and God wants us to make sure that we really and truly are members of the kingdom of Christ. That's the point of what we're going to look at, to see how powerful Jesus is, to be confident in that power, and to be trusting him and to be making sure that we are truly and really members of the kingdom that has come and that is coming, that he has brought into this world. Now, we're going to see that in three ways this morning. First, we're going to consider kingdom conflict. We're going to see that in his interactions with the Jews around him after healing the man who was uh, dumb. And then secondly, we're going to consider kingdom counterfeits, And finally, we're going to consider kingdom confirmation, kingdom conflict, kingdom counterfeits, and kingdom confirmation. Say that 10 times really fast. I'm sure you'll get tripped up. Now, notice that Luke tells us in verse 14, now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke. Very interesting that this takes place right where it does because the very last section of Luke 11 is teaching us how we are to speak to God. I think that that's intentional. The very last thing Jesus has taught is how we are to speak to God in prayer. You know, I was telling the new members class this morning, there are all these things we think about as we go through life and, um, or we don't think about as we go through life. Many times there are things we just take for granted and we, we, we never really analyze. We don't think about the meaning of them. Uh, we were talking about the church. What is the church? So often we talk about the church, but we don't really think about what we mean by the church. One of those things that we exercise every day that we hardly ever think about is speech and communication. We like to listen to people that can speak well. We're not always sure why. Sometimes we're drawn away by what they're saying and not actually listening to what they're saying and analyzing what they're saying. We just like the sound of the way they talk. You know, I would venture to say that 95% of everyone you see on TV would not be on TV if they couldn't speak well. It's not that they have great things to say. They know how to speak. They know how to use their tongues. Um, And yet, sadly, so often we don't think about our own speech in private, 
in the secret places, the things we say, the things we talk about, the people we talk about. James has that great section, a convicting section, where he says the tongue is a world of iniquity, like, like a planet of sin. Every one of us has a little world of iniquity that we carry with us. And yet, the tongue was created uh, in our first parents to praise God, to speak the truth of God, to sing the praises of God. That was the exclusive reason God gave speech to men and women. And here Jesus has taught us in that last section that in the work of redemption, what he is doing is redeeming our speech. He is teaching us how to communicate to God because born into this world, we don't communicate with God. We don't pray to the God who made us out of the womb. We don't spend the better part of our life speaking to God. We spend the better part of our life, scripture says, and it is so right, speaking lies and falsehoods. And and in a very real sense, we are just like the man who is mute, that Jesus is going to heal. He, in a sense, stands as a parable. Um, He's a picture, isn't he, of what was lost in the fall. We can't even pray to the God who Jesus has taught us to pray to, who has made us, unless he loosens our tongues to do so. I think there's an intentional connection here. Charles Spurgeon Meditating on this said, although man's heart was intended to be the throne of God, it has now become the palace of Satan. Whereas Adam was the obedient servant of the Most High, his body was a temple for God's love. Now through the fall, we have become the servants of sin. Our bodies have become the workshops of Satan. The spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, he he who was the progenitor of men, Adam, was overthrown by this dread enemy in the early days of innocence. Think about that. A few days in which the tongue worked the way it was supposed to work. That's it. All of human history. Just a few days that the tongue of men, tongues of men worked the way they were supposed to work. But the evil one used his tongue in deceiving our first parents and making us children of deceit, sons of disobedience with him. Those who use our tongues... For evil, You know, in James, when he talks about the tongue, and again, so convicting, when we read that, and he says, with it, we, we praise God, and with it, we curse men who are made in the image of God. And, and James brings that to a conclusion. He, he says, the tongue is an unruly evil. Who can tame it? It's a little bit like um, the questions we find in the Gospels. When Jesus calms the wind and the waves and the people say, who is this that can do this? There is one. There is one who controls the tongue. It's the Lord Jesus. There is one who has power over our tongues. And I think in this miracle of healing and then the subsequent conflict, Jesus is showing himself to be the second Adam who has come into this world to undo what the evil one has done, to fix what has been broken, to heal what has been marred by sin, to cure the very place in which we can't praise God to make us a people who praise him. I love the way the hymn writer says it. O loving wisdom of our God, when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. Here's a man who needs a deliverer. Here's a man who's been in bondage. We don't know much about it. He is not demon-possessed because he is deaf. That would be 
a terrible tragedy to say, he is deaf because he is demon-possessed. Now the people knew this man. They knew he couldn't speak. They knew that he was overtaken. We don't know if also it was a deaf demon. We don't know much about the demonic, but we know that he had a demon and the demon made him mute and he couldn't speak. And he, and, and think what a horrible life that would be if you were controlled by something that kept you from communicating. Just read a story about a famous sports uh, broadcaster, podcaster, who suddenly lost his voice. This is happening right now. And, and the doctors don't know why he lost his voice. And they don't know if he'll ever get it back. And he talked about what a burden it was and how his whole life had been changed. Everything that he had known was different now. And the frustration and the going to the doctors and the burden of not being able to communicate, not being able to do what he did his entire life. And he has a sort of a mechanical device now that if he holds his tongue down, he can speak a little bit because his tongue will fall out of his mouth if he doesn't speak, if he, if he, if he tries to speak so that he can't speak. And as I read that and as I thought about this, I thought the burden that this man felt, the weight on his soul, that something was deeply wrong. You know, think about this. Those who were paralytics could still speak, could still have fellowship with others, could still sing God's praises. Those with the withered hand could still get around. They could, they could open things with their other hand. Those with other maladies, those who couldn't see, could still hear and speak. This was almost the most burdensome of physical afflictions. And here with the spiritual dimension added on it, And yet it's a picture, as I said, of what we are by nature. You know, Jesus is going to heal this man with unbelievable ease. Uh, We don't even know how he did it. He just healed him instantly. He cast the demon out. The man spoke. The people saw it. They marveled. There's a lot of electricity and excitement in this passage, by the way. We're going to see that in a minute. Uh, it's a little bit like uh, the, the heavyweight fights I used to watch, all the people yelling and taking sides and the excitement and the commotion. That's going to happen because of this. But I don't want us to miss this this morning. The point of this is for us to see how powerful Jesus is. Because at the end of the day, what I need more than anything and what you need more than anything is to know, to believe, and to rely on the Lord Jesus, who is all-powerful, who has all power, to be convinced that he could heal the mute, that he could do anything and everything, that he's the almighty Christ. Now, there is something interesting before I go further, though, and I've meditated on this over the years. You know, this was a prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah in Isaiah 53 um, said, behold, your God will come with vengeance. He's talking about Christ. Your God will come with vengeance, Isaiah says. He says, with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. The eyes of the blind will be open. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb will sing. That was That was a description of what the Messiah would do. And here's Jesus, and he's doing all of those things. And he's doing them everywhere. And it's almost as if the last one is the greatest. The tongue of the dumb will sing. Now, Isaiah is meaning those things in the spiritual realm. 
You know, he's saying spiritually we are paralytic. Spiritually we are dead. Spiritually we are deaf. Spiritually we are dumb. And as I've meditated on this miracle in particular and thought about the way in which every physical healing Jesus does has a correlation to something he experiences at the cross, it's fascinating, isn't it, that Jesus saves us by, in a sense, being made silent when he's being judged. I think that's fascinating. Isaiah said he opened not his mouth. Uh, the gospel writer said he, he answered not a word. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. That's actually massively important theologically and for your spiritual good. John Calvin, when he's meditating on Christ not speaking before Pilate and Herod, those times that he remained silent, uh, essentially said that Jesus gave himself so much to obeying God and so much to standing in our place and being condemned for our sin, taking our uncleanness on him. Calvin says he was willing to be condemned to wipe out our iniquities. That's why it said he did not answer the accusations. Think about this. Why did Jesus remain silent? Why didn't he defend himself? If anyone could have defended himself when he was judged, if anyone could have opened their mouth and use their tongue to vindicate themselves, it would have been Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. But he remained silent so that he would save you and me from condemnation and judgment, because if he opened his mouth, Calvin says, he surely would have been released. I think that's profound. Calvin says here, it was not only to show his patience, but to acquire for us liberty to be able to glory in being righteous and innocent before God, knowing that God has received us in mercy, that all our faults were abolished by the perfection which was found in Jesus, and all because he opened not his mouth. Now, Jesus is here, of course, going beyond just helping a poor, physically handicapped individual. He is taking on forces of darkness as he always did. Jesus is going up against the evil one. Um, here, Genesis 3.15, again, that climax. The seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent. He is taking on the forces of darkness. He has come to conquer. He has come conquering and to conquer. And nothing is a match for Jesus. I want, I want that, let that be the thing this morning. Nothing is a match for Jesus. Um, your sin is not a match for Jesus. Often when we talk about the work of Christ, we love to think about Jesus taking the guilt of my sin, as Calvin just noted. We love to also think about him breaking the power of sin. When he died, he broke the power of sin. He, he delivers us from the, the bondage of sin. He takes the shame of sin on himself. Jesus deals with our sin as a mighty savior at, at, at the cross. But when the Bible speaks about the cross and about Jesus coming into the world, oftentimes it does so with reference to him coming to conquer the one who conquered man. Uh, William Still, the Scottish theologian, would talk about the dimensions of the cross. And he has this really excellent third dimension where he talks about Jesus conquering Satan. And 
he gives this illustration I've always loved. He said, you know, if, if you had a spider out in front of your front porch, we have those in southeast Georgia. They're super frustrating. And that spider, I've had this spider, this same spider. He's in all of our houses, same spider. And he, he somehow figures out making a huge cobweb across your front porch every morning is the best idea so that you walk through it when you're late to whatever you're going to. And, and then he takes it down at night, and you're like, oh, good, maybe he won't be back. And then he makes the cobweb again, and you walk through it again, and then you're ducking under it. Maybe you get tired of it, and you, kill, you, you, you cut down the cobweb, but you don't kill the spider. And then there it is the next morning. It's up again. Your sin is like the cobweb. It's your fault. You own it. You do it. You're responsible for it. But behind that, biblically, there is a spider sowing deceptive temptations and allurements who led our first parents away, who is, in a sense, the weaver of the web. Not responsible for our sins per se, but William still says, Christ came into the world to crush the spider, as it were. And that's why you have Jesus conquering the forces of darkness at every place and in every way until ultimately they are let loose on him at the cross where he ultimately conquers the evil one by his death. But notice that as Luke is developing this idea of kingdom conflict, there are others that are involved in this conflict. Now, there's excitement. Um, people are, Mama, who is this? He healed this lame man. What, what else can Jesus do? And there's excitement. There's electricity. And, and, and now there are two groups looking on who don't like what's happening. There are the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders, and then there are other people who sort of follow with them, and and they start to form two groups in response to Jesus' victory over demonic forces. You have antagonists, and you have skeptics. These are the two groups. Now, the antagonists, notice in verse 15, start to say, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Now, We don't have a lot of time to do this, but Beelzebul, to the best of my limited ability to figure this out, uh, is probably a reference to one of the God names for Baal. Uh, It turns up in the Old Testament in one time where Ahaziah the king falls through his lattice and dies, or he he becomes so harmed he's at the point of death. And the people, instead of going to Yahweh, instead of going to the Lord, said, let's go to Baal Zebub and see if he can heal him. Now, Baal means Lord, Zebul means either flies or dung. So, these religious leaders thought it was a good idea to call the Lord of glory the Lord of dung. That's what they're doing. They are, they are demeaning him, they are calling him the name of a pagan deity who was believed to have been the Lord of the lower world under Satan. Not even Satan. Like a, an under-officer to Satan himself. So this is, the, this is how... By the way, when people are afraid of Jesus, the length they will go to say and do crazy things, it's unbelievable. When people are afraid of the Savior, they will go to great lengths to say and do the craziest things. These people are antagonizing now. They're, they're essentially doing what Tyson did. They're trying to bite his ear. He cast out demons by Beelzebub, the lord of the demons. And then others, the skeptics, 
said, well, give us another sign. He just gave you a sign. Give us a sign. He just did a sign. That's the point. He just did a sign. Everywhere, Jesus is doing miracles. Show us another sign. At what point do you say, this is the Messiah? This is the Christ. We believe we will trust him. So you have the antagonist. You have the skeptics. By the way, that really sums up the better part of anyone that we interact with who opposes Jesus. They are either extremely antagonistic to Christ and his people, or they act in their sort of philosophical platitudes as if they, they just aren't sure because they don't have enough information about him. Um, notice that Jesus, knowing their thoughts, verse 17, says, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and, and its household falls. If Satan is divided against himself, will not, how will his kingdom stand? For if you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by who do your sons cast them out? They will be your judges. So Jesus uses a little logic with the people. It's always nice when Jesus brings some heavenly logic, and he says, what you're saying and your objections to the truth and the gospel are nonsensical. Um, any kingdom that is divided against itself, it's possible for a kingdom to be divided against itself. Any kingdom that is falls. Why would Satan be casting out Satan? And even your sons exercise demons, and they're going to be your judges because you know, as you see what's happening around you, that the kingdom of God has come. And then notice what Jesus says. He says in verse 20, notice this, but if it is by the finger of God, and elsewhere he says by the Holy Spirit, that I cast out demons, then the kingdom has come upon you. See, what Jesus is saying is that everything he was doing was proof that the kingdom of God had come. Everything he was doing was evidence. And when people say, I need evidence, no, you have plenty of evidence. And there is the absolute divine authority in every word that is breathed out in scripture, every miracle, every prophecy, every promise, every warning, every word of instruction, every single thing in the Bible is evidence and proof and authoritative and convincing. Now, I actually believe when people sort of enter into that false humility of, agnosticism, you just can't know, which is really saying I know everything and I know that you can't know because I know everything. Um, when they do that, they, they really know. You know. People don't hate Christians and Christianity and the scripture because they don't realize that this is God's word. They know this is different. They know there's authority. They hate the authority. Um, Jesus is telling them that the miracles he did were signs, proof, proof positive that he was indeed the Messiah and that he had come. Notice he calls himself the stronger than Satan. Now, here's the interesting thing about this. No one could defeat Satan. Um, I've met some pretty powerful people in my lifetime. My dad ran federal law enforcement training Center trained all federal agencies for the, for the strongest country in the history of humanity. So we had some very powerful people in our home when I was growing up. And not one of them could help you spiritually. Not one of them could overcome the evil one. Not one of them could deliver anyone from any of their sin or iniquity. Not one of them 
could do what you really need. They really have no power whatsoever. But here is Jesus, and he can conquer the unconquerable one. That's the point. Here is one who can conquer the unconquerable. Here is one who has entered into the house of the strong man, Satan, who is taking control. I was reading something about this, and while slavery is not a popular subject, I found this to be a very helpful illustration. He said, Satan is like a chattel owner, and everybody inside is under his control, and everyone's afraid to leave, and so most people just get comfortable in this world under the enslavement of the evil one. They get comfortable living in the chattel of Satan's stronghold. And Christ says he enters into the house and he binds the strong man and he ultimately casts him out and he sets the prisoner free. That's the point. Jesus wants you to know that he came to set the prisoner free. Now, in order for you to know that, you have to first be able to say, I'm in bondage to sin by nature. You will never be set free by Jesus until you know that you're enslaved to the evil one by nature. I think that's sort of the transition here briefly to the second point of kingdom counterfeits. Uh, The people are hearing this. There's excitement. As I said, there's electricity in the air. People are marveling, and yet people are raging. There's commotion and and, and people are following Jesus, and they're coming to him, and they're, they're starting to say, we'll come with you. We'll go wherever you go. And so Jesus gives this parable based on what he just did. He said, look, there are people who undergo reformation of life, and they think that they're really my disciples. And for a time, there's excitement, and there's joy, and there seems to be a reception of the word. And they, they've joined a church, and they seem to be a different person than what they were before. And, and yet they've never come to terms with the fact that they were in bondage. They've never come to Jesus for true deliverance. They don't talk about the cross. They don't talk about their sin. They don't talk about the wrath of God. They don't talk about the law condemning them and, and Christ having forgiven them and cleansed them. They, they've silently joined together with God's people. And Jesus says they're like somebody who had a demon depart from them. And so they looked clean. But then that demon decides, "Ah, I'm not finding anything better out here. So Jesus says, the demon says, I will return to my home. It's very important. Um, This is not Christ's dwelling place, the heart of this person. Jesus is saying within the kingdom, there will be those who undergo for a time some sort of reformation of life, but are not regenerate, And the last state, Jesus says, of that person will be worse than the first. Now, that's frightening. That's absolutely terrifying. And it should be. And if you're not, there's a problem. If you're not terrified by the fact that there are hypocrites in the kingdom of God, and I'm not saying that you should fear that you are. If you're a true believer, you shouldn't. But if you're not terrified by that, there is something terribly calloused and cold and ugly about your soul. Because I read this and I am shaken to the core that there are going to be people on Judgment Day who thought they were Christians. They were members of a church. They gathered together, but they didn't know Jesus. They tried to clean themselves up. They're just like the person in Jesus' parable. David Gooding 
said reformation without regeneration and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is dangerously inadequate. Anything short of true regeneration, anything short of being indwelt by the Holy Spirit is inadequate to get you to heaven and ultimately you are not part of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now, you know, this is one of those things. I'm called to be a minister. If I don't tell you that, I'm not being faithful to the Lord. God, the Holy Spirit, saw fit to put that in the Bible so that we would search our hearts and we would say, am I truly and really a member of the kingdom of Jesus? Have I really seen who he is? Have I really come to him? Have I really had my heart changed by him? Am I really indwelt by his spirit? Or am I just trying to sort of fix myself, put on a good show, make myself look better, act like I'm a Christian, muscle my way through, sort of playing the part? Um, I've seen this person. I'm 40 years old. I've seen this person many, many, many times in my life. For a time, they look like they're they're ministers. They're writing books. They're doing Christian things. And then down the road, they're having affairs with 10 people. And live in like hell. Why? Why? Because they were never regenerate, most likely. They were just like this person in Jesus' parable. There are kingdom counterfeits that often happen when exciting things are happening. Now, finally, and very, very briefly, there is kingdom confirmation. How do I know? How do I know whether or not I truly am a member of the kingdom of the Son of God's love? I want to be a member of that blessed kingdom. How do I know that I belong to the king, to the one who conquered the evil one? Well, notice as that excitement is mounting and as Jesus is teaching and the crowds are eager and interested, notice a woman in the back of the crowd raises her voice and she says, blessed is the womb that bore you. I like to imagine what this would have been like. She's way back, little lady. Blessed is the womb that bore you. (laughs) And Jesus says to her almost coldly, um, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So, um, he's not saying that Mary was not blessed. She was blessed, incredibly blessed to have given birth to the Savior. Uh, Notice, by the way, how quickly people are able to deviate their attention from Christ in the moment of excitement. Isn't that interesting? She didn't say, blessed are you, you're the redeemer. She said, blessed is the womb that bore you. People will go all around Christ and outside, even right to just outside to his closest of relations without focusing on him. And so Jesus takes that opportunity and says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. That means... Most of us, perhaps all of us in this room, profess faith in Christ and profess to have been redeemed by him. And the confirmation that we have is that we are a people who love his word. We love the word. We love the scriptures. We know when we've been out of it for too long a time, our souls are not doing well and we need to get back in it. We are grieved when we disobey. Because we love it. We are grieved when we disobey. We, we want our consciences to be brought into full accord with everything God reveals in his word. 
you know, Jesus brings it full circle, doesn't he, to Mary and Martha, which we saw the last time, two times ago. Here he brings it full circle. It's about sitting at the feet of Jesus. It's not about religious excitement. It's not about the electricity of getting on board with something big. You know, I heard a a theologian talk about this this week. He said, I've often marveled at these mega churches that spring up and, you know, there's lots of excitement. Everybody's talking about it. And you hear about this church, blah, 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 blah. And, and he said, and then, and then the Washington Post or the New York Times wants to do a cameo in that church. And, and this individual said, if those ministers had any sense, they would refuse to do those interviews as quickly as they're asked. Because they know that excitement and movement and all of that is not the mark of God's spirit at work, but making the people of God love the word of God is the mark that the spirit of God is at work. So if you love the word of God, if you love the gospel that's revealed in the scripture, if you love the Christ who we have heard about from the scripture and who we always hear of here, if you love the Lord of the scriptures and the Christ of the scriptures and every word he's breathed out, that is an indicator that you have been blessed and made an heir of the everlasting kingdom. I want to ask you a few questions as we close this morning. First, I want to ask you if you have ever recognized your own spiritual uh, dumbness your own spiritual muteness? Um, Have you ever come to terms with the fact that by nature you are not geared to speaking the truth about God and speaking to God and singing his praises? It's absolutely essential. If you want to get to heaven, if you want to get to heaven when you die, it is essential that you come to terms with the fact that by nature we are all spiritually mute just like this man. Then I would ask you, have you come to terms with the fact that Christ has all power, that he is the strong man who came to conquer the one that conquered man, that there is nothing that stops him, that when we come to him, we are safe with him, that he delivers us, that he comes to us, that he delivers us even as he came to this man, that this is why Christ came into the world, that he became mute as it were, before human judges so that we might open our mouths and praise to God on Judgment Day? And then I would ask you if you've examined your own heart. You've professed faith in Christ. Uh, Perhaps you attend worship every week. I would ask you to honestly ask yourself, have I ever been regenerate? Have I had a real work of the Spirit of God on me? Do I love the Word of God? Do I love the worship of God? Do I love the people of God? Do I love the Redeemer? Do I love even hearing the hard things that convict me? Or am I just playing a part, cleaning myself up, and the last state's going to be worse than the first? Um, I think these are questions we all have to ask ourselves this morning as we consider what the Lord Jesus came to do. But here's what I want to leave you with. The final thought, the final thought, God has not ordained you to come and sit here this morning and not be stirred up with confidence for the Lord Jesus. He wants you to leave this place 
confident about who Christ is, what he has done, what he is doing, what he will do, and he wants you to be confident that he has all the power that you need for every aspect of your life, especially for your spiritual life. And that if you will come to him and cast yourself on him, he will make you to know the exceeding greatness of that power. I certainly need that in my life. I imagine you need that in your life. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for these truths. We praise you for holding out your son to us, even in these circumstances and situations in which he found himself during his earthly ministry. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have conquered the evil one at the cross. We thank you that there is nothing too hard for you. We thank you that our sin, our guilt, our shame, our fears, our needs, none of them are too hard for you. So please make us to know in fresh ways the power of the gospel this morning. We pray, our God, that you would help us to examine ourselves to see whether we are truly and really members of your everlasting kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.